This is a Federal News Network podcast. Members of Congress continue their interest in seeing the curtailment of animal testing for drugs and cosmetics. Now, some members are urging the Food and Drug Administration to develop guidance for industry on how to avoid animal testing for products requiring FDA approval. Here with more, Nevada Congresswoman Dina Titus. Congresswoman Titus, good to have you back. Well, thank you. Pleasure. And you uh, really care about the animals, don't you? I do, and I appreciate you doing a story on them because, you know, 75% people in this country have a pet, and they think of the pet as part of the family. And when they hear about cruel testing on beagles and kittens, it's just really awful. And so FDA rules then require animal testing for certain classes of drugs and cosmetics? Well, that's right. And in order to get the FDA approval for new drugs and medical devices, you have to go through these tests that are required. And we know that the tests really aren't very good. They aren't as modern as some other methods. They aren't as economical, and they're just horribly cruel. And what are some of the methods we're aware of that industry might use in place of, as you say, beagles and kittens? Well, there's something called organs on chips that's more effective. Not using live animals to do the testing has been shown to be more effective. Ninety percent, I think, it's that high of drugs that pass animal tests then fail in humans. So what is the point of doing that? Right. The NIH is also looking at this. You cite their statistic. And I think at the NIH, they're trying to also reduce animal testing, although they still have chimpanzees and so forth. uh, Absolutely. Congressman Mast, uh, who's a Republican from Florida, and we probably don't have very much in common on other policy areas, but we have worked together on this to stop testing on beagles, stop testing on kittens, not doing the smoking test on monkeys. And we've had a lot of successes uh, thanks to White Coat Waste, which is an organization that helps support our efforts by getting other members to sign on and just getting information out about how horrible these things are. And there's been some progress at the Veterans Affairs Department, too, which also has a lot of medical testing going on. They have shut down a number of their testing programs. And so we're proud of that, but there's still some pretty horrible stories out there. Can you imagine a beagle? They use beagles because they're just so friendly and mild-mannered. And, oh, we had a beagle in the office who had been in the testing program and had been rescued afterwards. It's just heartbreaking. All right. And so now the expansion then from the government's direct testing by federal laboratories, this is using FDA's leverage on industry to spread it beyond just the government. Exactly. The letter that we've written is to ask FDA to develop some guidance for industry and to talk about the different methods that are available as alternatives to animal testing and to detail a transparent process that sponsors can engage with the agency on to figure out how to use and gain approval for the non-animal testing. And is there any thought of legislation to back up the letter? We may be able to do that. We want to see what their answer is first. We have gotten some language in the FY23 military bill. It's H.R. 8238 along these lines, and we hope that this will 
be enough, but if it's not, we won't stop there. We're speaking with Nevada Congresswoman Dina Titus, and I wanted to ask you about another matter that has been uh, uh-huh. in Congress for a while. You had introduced the Wild Horse and Burrow Protection Act concerning the Bureau of Land Management and its use of helicopters in tracking yeah. animals and so forth. Any progress there? What's the issue here? Well, there is some progress, but we've still got some more things to do. There are wild horses throughout the West, but most of them are in Nevada. And they're just these beautiful, iconic denizens of the American West. But they have to be managed. But the BLM has chosen the worst possible way of managing them. They round them up with helicopters, which often means running them to death. There was a video that came out in national news about a little colt that they just ran down and had to shoot and then they put them in these pens where they're just stored in overcrowded areas they are throughout the west and we recently there was an outbreak of a respiratory disease in some of these pens that killed hundreds of horses so several things are happening i've requested an oversight committee of the entire program so that letter has gone out and we hope to see that I've introduced legislation to stop the helicopter roundup. You know, if you want to round up some horses, hire some cowboys. They know how to do it. It'd be a lot cheaper and a lot safer. And then the third thing, I was very happy that we got $11 million in the appropriations bill to go towards the horse and burrow program to do more with birth control instead of these roundups. And so we've got to keep that in the appropriations bill. And if you look at the FDA and then we'll ask about the BLM, what is the response? Getting back Mm -hmm. to the letter on animal testing at the FDA, do they sound back to you like, yeah, we're in favor of this or one way or the other? Well, this is a new interaction with the FDA, so I'm waiting to see how they respond. We'll be talking to them. Now, the BLM, I've been dealing with them forever in Nevada. They're a very hidebound organization. They're hard to change. And they uh, are often captured by the ranching industry. Now, people don't mind cows out there on our public lands eating the grass, but they don't want horses to do it. They make some argument that horses aren't native, but horses are actually more native to that area than cows are. If you trace back their genealogy, I guess you call it. So dealing with the BLM is that we pull them along kicking and screaming. It seems like helicopters are kind of expensive way to to chase horses and also dangerous to the operators. Oh, there's no question about it. And there are about three companies that have been contracted with to do these roundups. So somebody's got an end there to be hired and they are expensive. And like I say, they scare the animals and run them to ground. There's some technology and some testing that's been done that shows that drones are a better way to do it. You put a drone out front and the horses will follow it. Why aren't we looking at alternatives like that? Because the legislation says they're supposed to humanely manage horses and burrows, and that is certainly not humane. And do we have any idea of how birth control might work for horses and burrows? Yes, there have been programs of using birth control ongoing for a long time, but the investment they make in that is like a 1% or 
a small amount of the money that they used in the management program. And if they made it a priority, I think that you'd see those budget numbers change. And that's what we hope to do. Nevada Congresswoman Dina Titus. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, well, thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all, but I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old and uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. 
But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.